Welcome to the U.S.-China Insights Podcast from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, featuring short interviews with leading experts on timely issues affecting the U.S.-China relationship. Xi Jinping assumed office in 2012 as General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and as Chairman of the Central Military Commission. He subsequently became President of the People's Republic of China in 2013. In March 2018, the National People's Congress passed a set of constitutional amendments including the removal of term limits for the President and Vice President, thus legally allowing Xi Jinping to serve unlimited terms. In this interview, Yu Hua Wang analyzes Xi Jinping's status in the Chinese political system and just how much influence he really has. Dr. Wang is the Frederick S. Danziger Associate Professor in the Department of Government at Harvard University. He is the author of Tying the Autocrats' Hands, The Rise of the Rule of Law in China, and The Rise and Fall of Imperial China, The Social Origins of State Development. We are grateful for the chance to speak with him today. So the first question, I was hoping that um, I should probably just start from square one and just ask, um, who is Xi Jinping? Obviously, with more of a focus on just, you know, kind of simply what his political position is in China right now. So Xi Jinping is the political leader of China. Among all the positions he's holding, he's probably holding dozens of positions right now. But there are three that are the most important. First, he's the president of China. Uh, this means that he's the head of the state. He gets to meet with other heads of state, for example, Queen Elizabeth uh, or the president of the United States. Uh, but in China, this is a symbolic position, which doesn't come with a lot of power. Second, he's the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. This means that he's the boss of the party. Uh, this is more powerful than, for example, his counterpart in the U.S., which, for example, is the chair of the Republican National Committee, which doesn't have a lot of power. But in China, if you are the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, you get to make decisions not only for the party, but also for the whole country. The third position, which is the most powerful among all, is the chairman of the Central Military Affairs Commission. This means that he's the commander in chief in China who is in charge of China's military. In addition to these formal positions, he's also a, a princely, which means that he's the son of one of the founding fathers of the People's Republic of China. His father, Xi Zhongxun, was a colleague of Mao Zedong's and also a high-ranking official in the 1950s, 1960s. So Xi Jinping has this uh, formal power coming from his formal positions, but also he has this charisma, his legacy from his father, who was one of the founding fathers. Awesome, thank you. Um, so how much power does Xi Jinping have? And I granted this is obviously a very comp uh, complicated question, um, but I was trying to think that, you know, a regular kind of like an everyday person would kind of think this question. So however you want to take that answer, obviously um, people write dissertations that don't cover things that are this broad. Um, it's a very inexact question, but yeah, hopefully, feel free to kind of take that question apart or take it in whichever direction you'd like. So a popular view is that Xi is a dictator who moves his fingers and things get done in China, but that's just not true. I'm going to make a bold argument here that uh, he's actually not as powerful as we think he is. Um, you know, we often associate power with formal positions, uh, but that has not been the case in Chinese politics. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, for example, who was the leader of China in the 1980s, um, didn't hold the same positions that Xi Jinping is holding. For example, uh, Deng was never uh, 
the president of China, Deng, was never the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. So you cannot really measure how much power a person has by looking at his formal positions. Um, you know, we political scientists often consider power to have three faces. We have three faces of power. The first is decision-making power. So who gets to make decisions? For example, how much money we should allocate to infrastructure rather than education, things like that. The second phase of power is so-called agenda setting power. That is, you know, we get to decide what decisions get to made. For example, you know, during a meeting, you know, what are the items on the agenda that we can make decisions on? This is the second phase of power. If you can make the agenda, you have a lot of power. But then the really important phase of power, which is the third phase of power, is about thought control. That is, you can influence how people think. And then if you have this phase of power, you have the third phase of power, you can influence how people think. You don't even need the first two phases of power. You don't need to make decisions. You don't need to set the agenda. We can just simply influence how people think, right? So that's the most important phase of power we political scientists care about. So in a sense, you know, say, say, for example, a lot of people compare Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping and think that Xi is more powerful than Mao Zedong. But I would make the counter argument that um, Mao actually has the third phase of power that in, during the Cultural Revolution, during the whole Mao era, I would say Mao could really influence how Chinese people think. You know, during the Cultural Revolution, people followed him, you know, voluntarily, you know, to become Red Guards, for example. And then, um, and people were voluntarily doing this, uh, not because of fear. It's actually because they believed in Mao, they believed in Maoism, they believed that Mao is a good leader who can lead China to a better future. But you know, I would say that uh, Xi Jinping doesn't have that power, right? Uh, I think most of the times in contemporary China, uh, Xi makes people comply by creating fear. Uh, it's not that people are following him voluntarily. It's actually people following him because people worry about the risks of not following him, right? And then say, for example, during his anti-corruption campaign, he arrested a lot of uh, high-ranking officials, uh, which created this fear among all the bureaucrats in the whole political system. And then people, you know, uh, uh, changed their behavior because of fear created during the anti-corruption campaign, not because people voluntarily follow what Xi Jinping tells them to do. Um, and uh, it might have reduced corruption in the Chinese government, but uh, we don't really know whether it will last once the fear is gone. And then. Um, one limitation of using fear is that you never know whether people are truly loyal to you, right? They are, they are now loyal to you on the surface. Uh, she appears to have no political opponents, at least publicly, but the officials all appear to be loyal and compliant, but, you know, they might be hiding their true feelings, right? Uh, so I think, you know, it's very important to understand it, uh, it's not only about, you know, what you look on the surface, uh, how powerful you are, whether you can make decisions. It's also about whether you can shape how people think. I, I want to get to kind of um, giving a few more comparisons, um, not just with Mao Zedong, but some other um, leaders today that I think a lot of Americans have heard of. Um, but before I do, I'm, I'm really interested in whether, you know, talking about these three, three phases of power, does she do, how much do we know about whether she as an individual has this power? or whether this is a coalition to what do we, how much do we really know about his individual power? Well, the truth is we don't know much, you know, it's, uh, you know, this is inside, uh, you know, politics within the Chinese Communist Party is not very transparent, but I guess, you know, one thing I can say is uh, she 
is very special among all the Chinese leaders or recent top leaders in the sense that um, he didn't have his coalition before he became the top leader of China. You know, he was working at the local level for a long period of time before he got promoted to Beijing. And then he really built his coalition after he became the top leader of China you know, in 2012. And then uh, you know, he was able to promote a lot of his colleagues uh, from the places he, he, he worked before. So he, you know, he, he, he didn't have this coalition before, but then he was able to build this, this coalition after he became the top leader. So I would say that uh, you know, his individual power is certainly you know, uh, outweigh the power from his coalition in this sense. So um, kind of changing one of my questions a little bit, um, you already mentioned um, political opponents, but um, when we're thinking about building a coalition, there's an in-group, but then by definition, there has to be an out-group. So, does he perhaps not have political opponents, but are there people, is there room for difference of thought underneath Xi, or is there kind of a diversity of, of um, I don't know, political groups, if not, you know, formal parties? One of the things that he has been trying to do since 2012 is he has been trying to um, eliminate or weaken the outside groups. Um, you know, for example, the anti-corruption campaign, one of the goals of the anti-corruption campaign is to weaken so-called factions um, that are not loyal to himself. He's trying to build his own faction, but also he's trying to make everyone his own faction. So I think that's one of his goals of, of governing China since 2012. So, so there might be opponents within the Chinese political system. There might be disagreements, but we just don't get to hear them because of the reason that I, I said, you know, there's this fear within the Chinese political system that everybody doesn't dare to speak out when they disagree with Xi. I think that's very dangerous for the ruler because, you know, as the ruler of a country, you want to hear what people are really thinking so that you know who are your enemies, who are your friends. But when everybody, you know, become quiet and then they, they comply, I think it's very dangerous for the top leader. So um, because things are very quiet, it might be hard to, hard to know when there's, um, trouble brewing, I guess I would say. So what, what do you think a sign might be that there is a potential transition happening or um, a shift in the balance of power? Are there any kind of, um, how would that manifest in terms of policy or, you know, rule of law and how, how the country is being, you know, ruled or governed? Well, you know, I, uh, I don't think there will be a big uh, event that uh, lead to the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party. I just, you know, I don't think that that will happen in the near future. But I think that in the next, uh, let's say, five or ten years, if Xi Jinping is still in power, let's say, in the next five or ten years, um, you know, one sign that uh, his power is declining is we see more policy changes or policy shifts within a very short period of time. Right? Um, you know, we. In, in the past several years that she has been trying to push for certain policies. But, uh, you know, we are maybe in the, in the next five or 10 years, we are likely some policies that, you know, some, there are some new policies that change his policies where there's some discussion, public discussions that uh, question the policies uh, that she made in the past 10 years. So I think those are probably the signs that his power is declining. Also a sign that there are disagreements within the party. But that's, you know, still 
very unlikely, I think, because you know she has accumulated so much power within the Chinese Communist Party, and then you know, like I said, you know, everybody is quiet because there is this fear. Interesting. Um, so taking it back to probably a more 101 level, going back to um, what you mentioned about Mao Zedong. So what about um, a political leader like Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin? Because I, I think these are also leaders who Americans might generally think of as dictators in this kind of, you know, broad sense. Um, but I would be interested to know how you would um, kind of disaggregate um, these three figures from this, you know, single definition. One difference between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un is that uh, Kim Jong-un's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, created the Workers' Party of Korea. This is you know, the ruling party in North Korea right now. Uh, so which means that the legitimacy of the Kim family uh, predated the legitimacy of the ruling party in Korea. And then you can imagine that, for example, if the Kim family is gone, uh, North Korea might collapse because the, the 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 whole legitimacy of the regime really depends on the legitimacy of the Kim family. But this is not the case for Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party. Um, uh, Xi's family, uh, you know, even though his father is was one of the founding fathers of the People's Republic of China, but you know he didn't create the party like Kim Jong. Uh, Kim Il-sung did. So therefore, the, the power of the Xi family or the power of Xi, Xi Jinping himself really comes from the party. The, the party has the legitimacy. People support the party, and then they support whoever controls the party. So therefore, you know, if you say, for example, if Xi Jinping is gone uh, or the Xi family is gone, you know, I would imagine that the Chinese Communist Party will still be there you know, in China, you know, ruling China because the legitimacy of the party is still protected. Xi Jinping himself, and then comes to uh, when it comes to Putin, it's very interesting that you know both are you know in in the popular view both are dictators who have a lot of power. But actually, if you look at what they did, they both follow the rules, right? You know, in in Putin's case, he had to step down because the constitution had uh, term limits, so he had to step down to become the prime minister, and then he comes back to become the president. For Xi Jinping, because the constitution has term limits for the presidency, he had to change the constitution. Also, it's you know this is you know, a, a manifestation of power, but then he had to follow the rules. He had to change the constitution so that he can follow the rules. When he, you know, abolished term limits, now he can do forever. Some of them actually follow the rules. So that's very interesting, which is very, uh, you know, counterintuitive when we think about them as powerful dictators. So you mentioned term limits, and I feel like I'm really, you know, pushing uh, to even ask this question because it's such a I mean, who knows, but this is something that like a regular person would ask. Um, so will Xi Jinping rule for life? He can rule for life, but it doesn't mean that he will. Um, you know, if I were Xi Jinping, I would never become Xi Jinping, but if I were the top leader in China and then there's no term limits, you know, the best way for me and for my legacies uh, to continue is actually when I'm healthy, when, when I'm relatively younger, uh, I would choose someone that I trust completely and then make that person my heir apparent and then make sure that he or she, you know, I hope it's a she, but it's not very likely in Chinese politics, you know, my parent will carry my legacies, right? So I think that would be the best scenario for, for Xi Jinping. Uh, so which means that, you know, if he really cares about his legacies, he will step down uh, earlier um, and then choose his heir apparent to make sure that the heir apparent will continue his policies. 
For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.